The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Today's scripture is Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20, and this is on page 784 if you're using the Black Bibles in front of you. If you would stand as I read God's word. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. It's good to see you this morning, saints. We are going to be in these verses that you just heard read for you, Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. We're starting a new sermon series this morning. We're going to, uh, if you saw this on Slack, be, be in this sermon series for five weeks talking about the heart of making disciples. In order to begin to narrow in on this idea of what Jesus just flat out explicitly calls us, commands us to do there in verse 19 when he says, go therefore and make disciples. What we realized first as elders is we need to maybe zoom out a layer, a level above and be able to explain to you something that we're pretty sure we've never taken the time to explain as fully as we ought to. Just what do we mean whenever you hear your pastors or you hear us speak on any given Sunday morning when we say that we exist to make mature and multiply disciples. My hunch is if we had an open mic right now, we turn on the mic and had everyone just sort of make one big line, come up and give me a definition of what it means to make disciples, give me a definition of what it means to mature disciples or multiply disciples. We have a definition for it, but it might not all be the same definition. It might not even be a biblical definition. And so what we've recognized is this, is that if we're going to get narrow as it relates to equipping and calling us as saints to go, to go and live out in obedience to Jesus, the command to make mature and multiply disciples, we need to make sure we're all on the same page. And that is what the aim and the purpose of this morning's sermon is as we look to what is famously known as the Great Commission from King Jesus. The sermon title this morning is just simply called Making, Maturing, Multiplying. And the main idea is this, is that as everyday disciples, as everyday disciples, Jesus calls us to make, mature, and multiply disciples. That is just flat out what Jesus is calling us to here in the Great Commission. And that is what we're going to seek to understand, not so that we can walk out of here with knowledge puffing us up, but so that we can walk out of here informed with what the king wants us to do, and so that by grace we can walk in obedience to him. That's the call of the everyday disciple. Grace that has saved us, grace that then fuels us to go, I'm going to go and obey the one who's just saved me by his grace. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray for one another, and maybe you find yourself here 
this morning. Part of corporate prayer as the Jesus people gathered this morning is we have the privilege of being able to go before the Lord in prayer. Amen? And one of the things that we need is something that we see, in, for instance, in Psalm 119, verse 18, where the psalmist says, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Open my eyes. And he's not talking about our physical eyes. It's not like the psalmist is sitting here and I need, I need the Lord to open my eyes. Although that might be some of us here this morning for a little too sleepy. Lord, I need you to even open my physical eyes right now. I think more importantly, he's talking about the spiritual eyes of our heart. And some of us have just gone through a week. Amen? Our spiritual eyes are droopy. They're tired. They're closed. And we have an opportunity to hear our living God speak to us through his word this morning. That's how he speaks to us. He speaks to us through his word. And if your life is like my life, what I need is I need to go to him in prayer often and ask him to open my eyes so that as I turn to his word, I don't spiritually take a snooze, but so that I'm sort of nudged closer to the edge of my seat and he opens my eyes so I can behold wonderful things from his law. I was debating on whether or not to use this language because I don't ever want to be accused of just consistently speaking in hyperbole or constantly just talking in high magnificent language because if you always say like this is a sermon that you really need to pay attention to to every sermon and there's a measure of every sermon is a sermon we need to pay attention to because it's a sermon from the Lord right that, that's why like I was sort of wrestling with this in my heart but there's something within me saints I've been praying for us your elders have been praying for us and at our elder retreat this past January we just really came away with the sense that the Lord has given us a very 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 clear direction on where to go with some of the groundwork that we've been laying for multiple years and that this is the year where these things are going to gel together as the Holy Spirit falls like fire on the, on the altar that we've been building for a while. And so that as we seek to no longer just simply pray, which is what we're going to continue doing and not stop doing, but actually ask ourselves now, how does our life make sense in light of these things? What does it look like for us to equip and go do, to be obedient to what we know to be true so that our life makes sense with the gospel we say we believe? And so there's a sense in which this sermon here, as I just labored to try to be as clear as I could be, to try to be as biblical as I could be, where I want to say this over the sermon, I think this might be the beginning. I want, I'm asking God to make this the little spark that ignites something supernatural beyond this morning to where our neighborhoods and our city gets turned upside down like we see in the book of Acts because a Jesus people walking in obedience to the king, filled, immersed, drenched by the Holy Spirit, go out as radical everyday disciples taking opportunities to intentionally confess Jesus. It's almost like I can feel it in my bones, like I can smell it in the air that God is at work in this world. Do you believe that God is at work in this world saving people right now? See, our world is on fire. The world has set its hair on fire and it is burning itself to the ground as the secular ideologies of this world are running rampant, but I can guarantee you there's one, they're running out of steam. 
The world is rapidly going to come and recognize that when you forsake the ways of God, that is a foundation that cannot hold you up. And your friends, your co-workers, your neighbors, your family members are living here. And what we have the privilege of being able to do is not sort of stick our head in their fire and set our hair on fire along with their hair being set on fire, but we can stand up and say, the light shines brightest in the dark. And as the darkness of a secular culture runs rampant, the light of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ shines like a beacon. And we have the opportunity to not melt down or set ourselves on fire or scorch ourselves, but to stand up firm on the word of God and say, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ saves sinners. And it is a light into the darkness. And I'm just telling you, I can see it in my mind's eye, my spiritual eye, that our neighborhoods and our city can be dumped upside down on its head as we humble ourselves before our Lord, walk in dependence upon his authority, recognizing he is with us even to the end of the age, so that as we go make disciples, baptize and teach, our neighborhoods can come and know Jesus. Our co-workers can come and know Jesus. Our family members can come and know Jesus. Do you guys see that? Do you believe that? Because that's the story of the Bible that you have in your lap. That's the story of the Bible you have on your phone or your device in front of you right now. And that's what I want us to try to grasp. And I'm going to stop and I'm going to pray here for a moment. I said all that so that we can do this. We don't need to fall asleep during this morning during this. I'm asking the Holy Spirit to pop open our spiritual eyes and to behold wonderful things from Matthew 28 today. Because the danger is some of us are like, oh, great commission. Yeah, yeah, go make and do some stuff. And we feel like that's permission to check out for the next 40-ish minutes. And I'm begging. I've been begging this week, and I'm going to beg right now. And I'm asking you to beg for yourself and for others on behalf that we do not snooze for the next 40 minutes but that the Holy Spirit would pop our eyes open and we would behold wonderful things. So here's the invitation before you. Don't just check out and listen to me pray. Pray for yourself. Ask God, would you make me behold something wonderful from your word this morning? Not so that I can just walk out with a big fat head full of more stuff, more knowledge, but so that my soul is changed. And as I go out into the next six days and 22 hours, I get to walk and live as an everyday disciple with the privilege of being able to make disciples, mature them, and see them multiply, okay? Let's humbly go before our Lord, and then we'll turn to the text before us. Father, we come before you, the glorious one, the majestic one, the holy one, the merciful one, the faithful one. And our confession is that we don't always see you in this way. Our eyes are prone to be cloudy and sleepy, droopy and drowsy as it comes to knowing you. And so our confession is we need you to help. Thank you for hearing a prayer of help. You, King Jesus, are the merciful and great high priest who is happy to show grace. You're happy to give us mercy that we need. 
for our help in time of need. I'm asking you to help me in my time of need. I'm asking you to fill me with your Holy Spirit, set me aside as it were, so that what's on display is Christ and his gospel. I'm asking you to help my friends so that they would behold wonderful things from the law this morning from your word, O God. Do this for your name's sake so that you might receive the glory and honor. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. I want you to chew on this question for me because this question is really going to be the theme that is woven throughout our understanding and our seeking to expose the truth of the Great Commission before us in Matthew 28. The question is this, does my life make sense if heaven is my home? Does my life make sense here on earth? Does my life make sense in my family? Does my life make sense in my workplace? Does my life make sense in the way I handle money? Does life make sense here on earth if heaven is my home? This is a question that came to the elders at least. It was a question at the center of a sermon that we recently listened to in preparation for some of our times together. And when you think about the question, does my life make sense if heaven is my home, this question hinges on this particular truth. If you have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus, then you are now a dual citizen. And not only are you an earthly citizen because of your first birth, but you are also a heavenly citizen because of your new birth in the Lord Jesus Christ. You are a dual citizen. So to ask, does my life make sense if heaven is my home? This is a great question to ask because this question invites us to examine whether or not our everyday lives reflect what we say we believe to be true from the Word of God. If heaven is my home, does my life on earth reflect this reality? Now, this question can be applied broadly to all kinds of areas of our lives. Does my life makes sense if all my possessions are ultimately from God? Does my life make sense if I'm responsible to raise my children in the fear of the Lord? Does my life make sense if Jesus calls me to walk in purity in my relationships? Or more specifically to our topic this morning as it relates to making, maturing, and multiplying disciples, we can ask this question, does my life make sense if the only hope of salvation is found in Christ alone? Does my life make sense if it's true that sinners who die apart from saving faith in Christ go to hell? Does my life make sense? If the gospel truly is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, do my prayers make sense? Do my conversations make sense? Do my friendships, my relationships, and my family life make sense? Do my words make sense? Do my actions make sense? Do my thoughts make sense in light of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? Now, the danger, there exists, exists a danger in asking a question like this. And the danger in asking questions like these is that we can very quickly spiral out 
into a cul-de-sac of guilt, into a a cul-de-sac of shame, because we all know very keenly there are areas of our lives that do not make sense in light of what we say and know and believe to be true from the Word of God. That dissonance, that disconnect is very sharp and very clear in all of our lives. There ain't nobody here who is perfectly walking in a way where every single <laughs> point and aspect and category of their life makes sense because we're all on a trajectory of maturing in the Lord Jesus Christ. But to hear a pastor like me get up and ask you the question right now, does your life make sense in light of the fact that heaven is your home, or more specifically, does your life make sense in light of the fact of the gospel, the Lord Jesus Christ, the enemy, the accuser of your soul, would love to just pull up right next to you, lean over, over the fact that there are some areas of disconnect in your life. But what you need to hear is this, that guilt and shame are not at the heart of a question like this. I'm not asking you to come down with some top-down, heavy-handed thumb upon us to try to guilt us into action or shame us into action. That's not at the heart of asking a question like that. That's not the intention behind asking the question. Rather, what you need to know is that the heart that lies at the very center of a question like we just asked is this. It's just flat-out pure invitation. It's invitation from Jesus. It's an invitation to step into the flourishing life Christ intends for those whom he has saved. It's an invitation to come and experience the joy-filled harmony of our heavenly citizenship informing and aligning with our everyday lives to ask the question, does my life here on earth align with and make sense in light of the fact that I am a dual citizen saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone is meant to help us see there are areas of our life that are not in line. There are areas of our life that are disconnected and Jesus isn't exposing that in your life right now so that you can walk out of here guilt-ridden and shamed by this. Jesus is asking you to examine your life in light of that question right now because the invitation is for you to then come and lean on him in absolute dependence upon him with his authority knowing that he is with you always to the end of the age so that you can walk in a manner pleasing to him asking him begging him depending upon him so that the gap begins to get shorter and smaller and closer and closer. He's asking you to come and live in the way that he's designed you to live if he is your king. It's invitational. That's what this question is. You see, this is what is at the heart of questions like these, and this is what is at the heart of the sermon series we're starting today and the next four sermons that are going to come. What Jesus is doing, I'm going to argue in Matthew 28, is that Jesus is inviting us into the blessed life of absolute dependence upon him as we walk in obedience to him. In short, Jesus is inviting us to experience the blessing where our lives just simply make sense because Jesus is our Savior and our Lord. That's what Jesus is doing. Yes, is it about us going and making disciples? Is it about us maturing disciples? Is it about us 
multiplying disciples are these classic verses known as the Great Commission, Jesus giving His everyday disciples marching orders to obey as they live out their lives in this world. Yes, but what I'm doing, and I'm trying to argue before you now, the umbrella, the level above that that hangs all over it is Jesus is saying, this is where flourishing exists. This is where life makes the most sense if I am your Savior and your Lord. And so he's just inviting us not into a burdensome thing. Some of us read the Great Commission and it burdens us. We're like, oh, I'm making disciples. That's awkward and that's hard and there might be persecution. Man, maturing disciples, man, that's a lot of work and that's going to take time. Or multiplying disciples, going and being constantly vigilant of being intentional. We hear that and what we do is we receive that as a burden. But what I'm trying to challenge you to do right now now is understand is that these verses, the classic Great Commission, are not burdensome because John tells us in 1 John 5 that no command of the king is burdensome. What he's doing right now is he's invitationally inviting you to a life of pure and absolute flourishing when you walk in such a manner to where your life just simply makes sense and lines up with what we know to be true concerning Jesus. So look at how these verses begin. Look at how these verses begin, starting in verses 16 and following. Matthew tells us that the 11 disciples, why is it not 12? Because Judas is gone. Acts hasn't happened yet, so that 12th replacement hasn't shown up, so it's the 11. Matthew tells us that the 11 disciples head off to a Galilean mountain, and when they saw him, they worshipped him even though some doubted. Then we witness Jesus issuing the marching orders for his redeemed people, what is oftentimes called the Great Commission. But notice how our King's Great Commission is surrounded by the language of invitation. I'm arguing that verses 18 and the very end of verse 20 are the language of invitation. Look at what Jesus says in verse 18 in your copy of Scripture. He says, listen, everybody, you need to know this. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's good news in every single area of life. It's good news for Ukraine and Russia. It's good news for your workplace. It's good news for your marriage. It's good news for your parenting. It's good news for your disciple-making, for your disciple-maturing, for your disciple-multiplying. It's good news that there is a single person in whom all authority rests in heaven and on earth. And Jesus says, it's in me. This is resurrected Jesus. By the way, Jesus who's just defeated Satan, sin, and death and came out of a grave. He is the only one who has the authority to say all authority has been given to me because if you can defeat Satan, if you can defeat sin, and you can defeat death, you're the one that got the authority. Amen? All right, so he's establishing this, but it's not like Jesus saying, I've got the authority. He's saying, no, I've got the authority. This is invitational language, remember, that Jesus is laying out before us. I want to be near the guy who's got all the authority. And Jesus is saying, come on, come close to me, lean on me, be dependent upon me, because I'm the one, heaven on earth, who's got all the authority. And if a guy just walked out of the grave and defeated Satan, sin, and death, I'm going to listen to him. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's calling us. It's invitational. But notice at the end of verse 20, 
Not only is all authority in heaven on earth been given to Jesus, he says, and I am with you always to the end of the age. And that's really good news because all authority has been given to me, says Jesus. What I want you to do is heed the invitation to rest on my strength and not your own. And furthermore, because I am with you always to the end of the age, I want you to heed the invitation to rest upon my ever-present nearness, for I will never leave you nor forsake you. Charles, I believe, was saying in earlier in our prayer of confession, man, if it is good news that Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth, but then he's just like, I don't really want to be near you. You actually repulse me. Get out of my face. That would be bad news. Or if it was, I have all authority in heaven on earth. It's all been given to me. But what you need to do is sure hope you can stick close to me because it's all in your strength to make sure you stick close to me. Our hearts, this is part Charles' language, I know my heart enough to know that I'm prone to wander. But Jesus comes along and says, here's another invitation for you. I have made the conscious decision of the will to be near you. Always to the end of the age. In other words, since Jesus has all authority and since Jesus is with us, our everyday lives will make sense. Listen, as we collapse in complete Christ reliance upon our King, ask the question, how can my life make sense tomorrow morning when I lift my head off the pillow and get prepared to go to work? Your life will line up. Your life will begin to make sense when you walk out the door saying things like this, Jesus, you're the one with all authority. I am prone to believe I'm the one with all authority. I need you to squash that in my own heart and wean me off of self-reliance and bring me to lay hold of you in complete Christ reliance, recognizing you're the one with all authority over my day. Amen. And then eat your Pop-Tart and spill your coffee and go to work, right? That's, that's one way you can do it. The other way is to go, man, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Jesus, will you be with me today? I need to have a hard conversation at work. Jesus, will you be with me today? I have to give a presentation. Jesus, will you be with me today? Because I need to raise my children and fill in the blank and fill in the blank and fill in the blank. And the promise that you have is Jesus going, I would love to be with you today. That's actually my heart. That's my heart for you. In the cancer, in the sickness, in the hurts, in the sufferings, the temptations, I love to be with you. This is what complete Christ reliance upon our King looks like. And then as people begin to see you resting on that authority and delighting in the ever-present nearness of Jesus, what they begin to see are a people whose lives are aligning with these truths and your life just seems to make sense if Jesus is your King in these ways. But notice, notice that not only does this language of invitation exist with the authority and the nearness part. But Jesus says your everyday life will make sense as you obey my command to make mature and multiply disciples. That's the great commission part in the middle. Notice how the language of invitation carries over into verses 19 and in that first part of 20 when Jesus says, go therefore. It'll make sense if you recognize I have all authority. It'll make sense if you recognize I'm with you always and it'll make sense. Your life will make sense if you go. If you make disciples of all nations, if you baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, your life will make sense if you go about teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. 
one of the sweetest places, and I love it because it's short and it's sweet, it's to the point, is in the Gospel of Luke. Our brother in Christ, Luke, writes in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, the most clearest, succinct summary that describes the purpose of the Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus himself says about himself as the Son of Man, he says, here's what you need to know. This is the whole Nicodemus, right? Climbed up in a tree just to see what he could see. We little Nicodemus there. Um, and he says this, Jesus, the son, or Zacchaeus, sorry, not Nicodemus, Zacchaeus. Man, I don't even know my own kid, children's songs, man. Mm-mm-mm. Tom, can you believe it? Zacchaeus was a wee little man. Okay, all right. Okay, now I got it. So there you go. I had to knock a little dust off, all right? The Zacchaeus information, if I was wrong, man, you should have just shouted out Zacchaeus, dude. Okay, all right, I just didn't hear you there. Sorry about that. I, I, I appreciate that, man. As you'll see here in a minute, you're being biblical. Um, what does he say in Luke 19.10? The Son of Man came to do two things. Seek and save the lost, period. The lost need to be saved. The lost thus need to be sought. So in their seeking, they can be found and be saved. This is what marked Jesus' everyday life. And now here is the resurrected all authority, ever present nearness, Jesus looking at you, this everyday disciple, and saying, Here's the invitation that's laid out before all who would deny themselves, for all who would pick up their cross, and all who would follow me. What you need to know, he says, Listen, if you're going to follow me to be my disciple, this is the invitational path that's laid out before you right now. This isn't a path where you get to go do what you want to do. This isn't the path that you get to carve on your own. I'm showing you the path. The invitation lies before you. Just as I was all about seeking and saving the lost, I want you to adopt the same heart attitude. Now, we can seek the lost, we cannot save the lost. Only Jesus can save the the lost, but what we do in seeking the lost is pointing them then to the one who can save the lost. Jesus says, I am the master, and my life was filled with pursuing the making, maturing, and the multiplying of disciples, and the servant isn't greater than the master. So if the master was about this, Jesus is inviting us to say, your life of flourishing, this life of blessing, your life here on earth will make the most sense when you imitate me in these ways. Again, our lives will make the most sense if our everyday lives align with the pattern of Jesus's life, which was spent making, maturing, and multiplying disciples. So the question to ask is, where do we see this in the text? That sounds good, but is that what the Bible is saying? That's the question you should ask any given Sunday. Where do we see this in the text? Well, we see it when Jesus, first of all, explicitly calls us to make disciples. And that's just point number one. I mean, it's just explicit as the noonday sun. It's just laying right there on the top of the text. First part of verse 19. Look at the beginning where Jesus says, Go therefore, and here it is, make disciples of all nations. Make disciples. Now, when Jesus calls us to make disciples, he is calling us to something that is decidedly evangelistic. Okay? Okay? Making disciples is evangelism-oriented. 
That's the kind of language we use here at Delta. When we look at you at the very end of the service and the gathering pastor says, hey guys, remember, we exist to make disciples. What we're talking about specifically is something that is evangelism oriented. There are people who do not know Jesus, thus they are not a disciple, and they need to be made into a disciple. They need to go from what they are not to something that it is possible to become by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. A great question to ask yourself is, what's the disciple? Jesus is saying, go, and, go make one. Go make what? A disciple. Ask yourself, well, what is this thing that he's asking us to go and make? What's a disciple? A simple definition. This isn't the only way to define it, but a simple definition could look like this. A disciple is someone who has believed on Jesus Christ alone for salvation. They're a sinner who recognizes their sin separates them from God. And that's a big problem. They recognize that Jesus Christ is a Savior who loves to save sinners and through His death, burial, and resurrection accomplished the sacrifice that was needed so that we would not have to find wrath from God but welcome from God. And they've come to the place where they've responded by admitting I'm a sinner, believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, confessing their sin, and then calling out in response, saying, Jesus, save me, and Jesus has saved him. This is a disciple. Thus, for someone who has not believed on Jesus for salvation means they are not a disciple, which is why they need to be made into one. So this is why Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations, because the neighborhoods of where you live, the neighborhoods of where you work, the neighborhoods of where you rest, the neighborhoods that need to be restored in our lives are filled full of people who are not disciples of Jesus. Every man and woman from every nation of the world deserves the opportunity to hear the saving message of Jesus so that by the power of God they might repent of their sin, believe on Jesus, and thus be made a disciple of His. Therefore, since the world is full of not yet made disciples. Is that how you see the world around you? I'm surrounded by a bunch of not yet made disciples. Because they are where I used to once be. Then someone came and shared Jesus with me. And I repented and I believed. They saw me as a potential not yet made disciple. Sometimes we can view the world around us that is just setting its hair on fire as those people out there, those, those sinners, those gross people who just don't quite know what denying God. And Jesus says, no, 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 let's flip this around. There is a world full of not yet made disciples and Christ's command is for everyday disciples to make disciples of all nations, resting on his sovereign authority to save and leaning on his ever-present nearness as we go. Now, here's what you need to know. At Delta, we define the call to make disciples like this. It's the act of discipling someone from unbelief to belief. This is crucial for you to know and understand. When we say on any given Sunday at the end of the service, the gathering pastor gets up and says, we exist to make disciples. Here is the definition that we're operating from, that we're equipping for, and we're calling everyone that calls Delta home to. We're calling you to see that the act of making disciples is the act of discipling someone from unbelief to belief. From unbelief to belief. You see, it's important to understand that the act of discipling is not just reserved for Christians. 
when we in the church talk about discipleship, hey, are you discipling anyone? Is anyone discipling you? I would guarantee you 99.9% of us would couch the language of discipleship and discipling as between only Christians. It's what a believer does to another believer. If you were to ask another Christian, who is involved in a discipling relationship, there's a really good chance they would answer only in terms of one believer to another. In other words, discipling is what someone enters into. This discipleship idea is what someone enters into only once they have been made a disciple. Hey, now that you're a disciple, have you begun your discipleship? But what we're going to do is challenge that because I think the Bible challenges us to think differently. Now, it is true, as we'll see here shortly, everyday disciples are to mature as disciples, which involves believers being intimately involved in another believer's life. So, don't hear what I'm not saying. What I'm not saying is that idea of believer and believer in one another's life, walking together. What we're just saying is that is not what making disciples is about. That is the act of maturing as a disciple. Maturing as disciples, as we're going to see here, is what happens from that moment you first believe and you're on a trajectory of ever-increasing maturity of being conformed in the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. What we're saying is what happens in someone's life before they come to believe. What we want to be is a people who are about discipling others in our lives along a trajectory from unbelief to belief. You see, to limit the act of discipling to be only among believers is to miss. It misses the robust view of Scripture, which reveals that discipling others also encompasses walking with someone from unbelief to belief. Now, this truth, what I'm saying to you, it was missed on me for so many years, and it's largely missed among the church in the West, which is really unfortunate because this concept, the concept I'm laying before you right now, that making disciples is intentionally walking with someone else from unbelief to belief, that's going to be a long road. Rarely is it ever a short road. This idea is really not that uncommon to us in our daily lives. Just think about this. How many of us here this morning grew up in the church? Like mom and dad, grandma and grandpa took us to the church, okay? Probably about two-thirds of us here. Think about your life growing up in the church when you showed up on Sunday morning and you went to Sunday school, maybe your mom and dad were bringing you, you were a little kid, maybe someone invited you and as a youth group, or maybe it was a college outreach event, or maybe you're a young adult, or maybe you're an older adult, but you don't know Jesus, someone invited you to church, you come to church, you show up to church, what begins to happen to you in that moment? Your life in the church is really one, in this instance, this illustration, a life of being discipled from unbelief to belief. You're learning how to pray, you're learning the scriptures, you're learning about Jesus, you're singing 
songs, your understanding and wrestling with the truths of God. You're going to Sunday school. You're going to community group. Maybe you're even in a discipleship group. There's all different kinds of ways where what no one is saying is saying, listen, you know, go figure out the Jesus thing, Tom, and then come back to me once you get saved because then we will start to figure out as a church how this whole discipleship thing works. No, there is a sense that just by, by being within the life and the ebb and the flow and the rhythms of church, your growing up in church was one of the pastors and your Sunday school teachers and your youth pastor and your college leaders and your singles ministry or whatever it might be. What they were doing was looking at you, walking with you a someone over a long period period of time helping you move along the trajectory of unbelief to belief. Then that moment came when you repented, the Holy Spirit regenerated your heart, you repented of your sin, you believed in Christ, and what happened? If the church says, well, let's just keep on doing what we've already been doing, let's walk, continue forward in how you move from now belief to maturity. Or maybe you didn't grow up in church, or maybe you did this, parenting in the home. Think about this. How do we go about parenting in the home? Parenting in the home is discipling our children from unbelief to belief. Psalm 51 tells us our children come into this world sinners in need of a Savior. And what we don't do is say, you know what, we'll go crack the whole family worship code once our kids all get saved. We don't start teaching them Jesus teaching them the Bible, teaching them how to pray, teaching them how to repent, teaching them assurance that can be found in the gospel. We don't do that when we, we don't just sit back and go, you know what, I sure hope they get saved. I'm going to do absolutely nothing because after all, discipleship doesn't start until, until someone gets saved and then your kid just sort of magically were hoping they get saved and it's like, all right, I'm activated as a parent. No, we don't do that. We don't do that. We operate from the mode of we are walking with this little unbeliever, a very cute and precious little unbeliever, but biblically an unbeliever who needs to repent of their sin and place their faith in Christ. And we walk with them. We teach them. We hold their hands. We show them how they need the gospel. They show them their need for Christ. We show them how to pray. We show them what to pray. We show them how to study the Bible. We show them the doctrines. We show them the scriptures. We show them why they repent and confess and tithe and worship and sing songs. And then we're building up all of this kindling and we're stacking it against their hearts. And the whole time as parents, what are we doing? We're begging, Holy Spirit, ignite that kindling. Holy Spirit, ignite that kindling. Holy Spirit, ignite that kindling. I'm walking with my child. I'm treating them as an unbeliever because that's what they are, but I'm discipling them along this trajectory of unbelief to belief. And then what happens? At some points in time, in God's mysterious ways, he saves them and fire falls and the kindling is ignited and that child comes to repent and believe. And then what do you do as a parent? You don't go like, well, my job here is done. You then begin to go, now that you're a believer and the Holy Spirit lives within you, let me continue to walk with you along a trajectory of belief to maturity. If those illustrations aren't convincing enough, there's a documentary out there on the internet. I would highly recommend it. I'm going to post it on, that you watch it, I'm going to post it on Slack here. Um, the persecuted church, by the way, lives, eats, sleeps, breathes this reality. Walking with someone from unbelief to belief. There is a documentary out there on YouTube about the persecuted church in Iran called Sheep Among Wolves. It's a two-part documentary. 
I would highly recommend you go watch the second part because when you go watch the second part, which I will post on Slack here this coming week, what you find out is this, is that uh, persecution is at an all-time high in the country of Iran, but the country of Iran is also one of the leading, fastest-growing churches in the world right now. And here's how they're going about making disciples. They're not going on the street corner with a bullhorn saying, repent and believe in Jesus, because that's a surefire way to be thrown in prison or killed. So what they say is this. They say they're begging God, Luke 10, will you bring people of peace to us? Will you show us those people who are overly not concerned with the fact that we're talking about Jesus and sharing Jesus, and then Jesus in his goodness brings those people of peace, and what they immediately begin to do with those people is say, listen, I know you're an unbeliever, I know you've got questions, but I'm going to show you how to pray, I'm going to show you how to pursue Jesus, I'm going to teach you how to read the Bible, and then they even go so far as to say, I want you to go and do this in someone else's life as an unbeliever, and what they're doing is saying, we're begging the Holy Spirit, as these men and women go, outright unbelievers, we're training them and turning around immediately saying, take this back to your family. We're trusting and begging in the Holy Spirit to regenerate them. So then as we walk with them, discipling them along a trajectory of unbelief to belief, these little pockets of churches are popping up all over the place as the Holy Spirit is breathing something supernatural and miraculous in a nation where it is criminal to be a Christian. The persecuted church understands this concept. We in the West have negated this concept. And I'm telling you, I think where we are at at Delta is saying, let's join our brothers and sisters who I think are walking in a biblical model. If you're like, well, okay, that's great, you know, where do we see this at in the Bible? So here's some more illustrations where we see discipling someone from unbelief to belief. It's just found in the Bible, for instance, in a place like 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. The Apostle Paul tells us that Christ reconciled us to himself. Christ reconciled us to himself. And then what did he do? He gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So he saved us and then turned around and said, just as I have reconciled you, you now have this ministry, so go and seek and live out the ministry that I've just given you. Meaning that, Paul continues, in Christ, what was God doing? God was entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Jesus saves us and says, I'm giving you this ministry of reconciliation. And what you need to know is this is God entrusting you with this message of reconciliation. Therefore, because this is all true, point blank statement, we are ambassadors for Christ. What's an ambassador? An ambassador, if you want to just speak about it like in secular terms, is someone like Charles. He becomes an ambassador. He goes and works for President Biden in the system and says, hey, President Biden here, one man, can't be everywhere in the world, but we have an agenda. We have a will. We want things that we want to be done in the world. So what I'm going to do is replicate myself by sending out ambassadors. And the ambassador's job is to be, he would like this, be ambassador to Italy, to go to Italy. And then what is his job there? His job isn't to show up and say, I am here to represent President Biden. Well, that was easy. And then walk off. No, his whole life as an ambassador, is to continually say day in, day out, over the long haul, I am here representing the president. I'm showing you what he wants. I'm telling you how he's processing this law, this agenda, or whatever it might be. And in a similar sense, King Jesus 
does this. You are his ambassadors in the world around you. An ambassador is someone who does this in a continual day in, day out reality. It's not a one-off. Ambassadors are called to continual representation. You're like, okay, that's Paul. That's the New Testament. Do we, but do we see it in Jesus? And I would argue that's exactly what Jesus did. What we're talking about, discipling someone from unbelief to belief, is what he did with the 12 for three years. Zoom in on the Gospels and we see that discipling people from unbelief to belief is what Jesus did with the 12. All you have to do is just stick in Matthew's Gospel. You can see it in Mark's Gospel really clearly as well. Just look at Matthew's own Gospel. You go to the very beginning, Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 through 22. And what does Jesus say? He shows up next to the seaside. He sees four of the guys who are going to follow him or that are fishing for fish. And what does he say to them? I want you to follow me. I want you to follow me. And whatever I'm going to do, I will, notice the word, make you. Mark says, make you become fishers of men. At this stage in the disciples' lives, I'm telling you, the disciples were not confirmed believers at this point. Jesus didn't just go about doing his own deal, waiting for people to figure it out and be like, oh, now that you figured it out, hey, why don't you be my disciple? No, he came and he sank his teeth, he sank his hooks into 12 guys and said, I'm going to walk with you over the course of however long it takes helping you move along the trajectory of unbelief to belief. Jesus called them to walk with him as he was forming them into what they were not yet, fishers of men. Then, fast forward into Matthew chapter 10, notice that they experienced continued proximity to Jesus. It says Jesus, out of all the disciples, pulled these 12 near. So there is a continued proximity to Jesus. And then Jesus invites them to go out and live like him. I would argue not as believers yet. And what does he say to them? I want you to go out preaching with authority. I'm calling you to cast out demons. Now, there's something unique going on here. Jesus is building his church. This is something apostolic going on here. But I would argue the model is something that Jesus is setting out. He's doing this all while these 12 were unbelievers being discipled by Jesus along the trajectory of unbelief to belief. And then you finally come to Matthew 28, verse 17. And what do you see? They saw him, the resurrected to Jesus and they worship him there. I think what we see is the glimpse from Matthew that at this point they have come, they have heard about Jesus, they saw what he did, they saw how he lived, they saw as he went, they saw him make because they were on the receiving end of making. He was showing them how to mature and now the point comes where he is bursted out of the grave, he has proven his sacrifice was fully accepted by the Father Satan, sin, death, defeated. What they do is they fall down in full belief. You are the Messiah. And they worship him as so. And Jesus does not rebuff this. He receives it because he is the only one worthy to be worshipped. Because he is their Savior. He is their Lord. And it's almost like he picks him up and says, All right, now this is what it looks like for you. Go make mature multiply just as I did with you over the past three years. That's the invitation that he lays before them. They are true worshipers of Jesus. And now Jesus says, go and do likewise. Go and do what I just did with you, discipling folks from unbelief to belief. And just as it was commanded of the 11, so it is commanded of every one of us today, living in this Christ-reliant place of making disciples like Jesus is where life just makes sense, according to Jesus. 
But not only that, Jesus says everyday disciples are to mature disciples. These last two are going to be a little bit quicker. I really wanted to press in on this idea of making disciples because I think this is the one that we have room to grow in as a Jesus family. Okay? Maturing disciples, look in your Bible what Jesus says. After the call to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Here it's just enough to see that while making disciples is evangelism-oriented, maturing disciples is equipping-oriented. Now that this man, now that this woman has been made into a disciple, what do they need? They need to be equipped so they can grow. Once someone has been made a disciple by the saving power of God, their discipleship journey has not ended. And that's because now as a disciple, they're on the lifelong journey of ever-increasing maturity in Christ. What you need to know when we talk about maturing as disciples, it means this. Maturing disciples is discipling someone from belief to maturity. When you hear us say that on any given Sunday, this is what we mean. You see, the king who died and rose again so that we might be saved has given us commands which are to be observed and obeyed. Upon being made a disciple, this new disciple first walks in obedience to Jesus, observing the command to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And then the remainder of their life, what does it consist of? Not only being taught by other disciples, but teaching other disciples what it looks like to walk in obedience to their Lord and Savior. It's just replicating itself out, you see. And what the Bible plainly reveals is that this journey of ever-increasing maturity is not something we do alone. Man, one of the most damnable, and I use that word very intentionally, one of the most damnable realities in the church in the West is Lone Ranger Christianity. Where somehow we think we will be able to mature in Christ solo. And the Bible just does not speak in that language. There is an individual aspect to our discipleship. Abiding in Jesus taking in Him, leaning in Him, being dependent upon Him. Absolutely true. There is an individual aspect to our discipleship, but the Bible is replete, covered, stem to stern, with language about our need for one another so that we might mature as the disciple we are. Classic Hebrews 3.13 but exhort one another. There's one another. You need one another to be able to obey the one another command. You can't exhort one another if you're just talking to yourself in the mirror. Exhort one another. Notice that it's consistent every day as long as it's called today. Why? Because sin is deceitful and our hearts can be hardened and tricked if we try to roll solo. Or go to Hebrews 10, 24 through 25. Over and over and over again, the writer of the Hebrews consistently says, let us do this, let us do that. He's not talking about like cabbage, carrots, and lettuce, right? He's actually saying, let us, you, me, we need each other to be able to do this. Let us consider how to stir up, here it is, one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. Don't go about this in the Lone Ranger mentality, but encouraging one another. I need you, you need me, if we are going to be encouraged to run the race of faith, and we need to have this as the reality in our lives all the more as you see the capital D day drawing there. There's a day when Jesus is coming back, and the way we pursue maturity in the Lord Jesus Christ is with one another. 
That's why we have community groups, CGs, and discipleship groups here, DGs, things that we are going to be training and equipping for over this course of the year because we need one another. Discipling happening to us as we are turning around and discipling others so that we can move from belief to maturity. According to Jesus, discipling others and being discipled from belief to ever-increasing maturity is just where life makes sense baptizing and teaching. That's what you see there in the scriptures. And then what's the overflow of this? A body of believers who multiply disciples. Where do you see the idea, the concept of multiply? I would argue the concept of multiplying disciples is packed into that first two-letter word at the beginning of verse 19. G-O. Go. Go. The New Testament pattern looks like this. A disciple made as a disciple maturing, who is then able to go and do the same in the life of someone else. This multiplying disciples is just simply, here's our definition for this, multiplying disciples is just simply reproducing the mission in others. Where do we see this in the Bible? A classic place would be 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. 2 Tim 2.2. 2. Notice what Paul says, what you, Timothy, have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So notice the four concentric rings there. Paul taught Timothy. Timothy is then to entrust what he learned to other faithful men. That's ring number three. And then those Faithful men are to turn around and go and teach others also. That's ring number four. So there's four generations of multiplication there packed into one single verse. So Jesus is saying, listen, while you are going, while you are making your life's plans, while you're shopping, while you're taking your kid to soccer, while you're talking to your neighbor, while you're trading tools with your grandparents, while you're working with your coworker, while you're in your home, while you're talking with your CrossFit partner, while you're working downtown at the Washington Street Mission, or all these things, as you go, that's going idea is not I went once and I'm done. It's this continual present tense action of going, 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 while you are going, be about the business of making disciples. So don't just think additional, but think intentional. Does anyone else here this does anyone here this morning need something additional added to your life? I do not. It's okay that none of you raised your hands. I do not need anything additional added to my life. But Jesus is not asking you to add anything additional to your life. He's just saying be intentional with the life that you have right now. Make a business of this work as you go. In Luke's gospel, you see this all the time. Jesus set his face to Jerusalem, and as he went, he had this interaction. And as he went, he had this conversation. And as he went, he performed this healing. As he went, he shared this gospel. As he went, he saved this sinner. As he was going, this is what he was about. Listen, brothers and sisters, we're wrapping it up. We're done here. Listen. What you need to know is that the way we just define this make, mature, and multiply, this is the basket we're putting our eggs into for the life of our church. What we just heard this morning is the bullseye that we are aiming for and we are begging God to bring about as we rely upon the power of the Holy Spirit. What you need to know is like this time next year, I'm not going to come back and say, remember that whole make, mature, multiply stuff? In, out with the old and in with the new. We're just not doing that. 
Like, this is the basket. We're putting all our eggs into this basket because we think it's the biblical basket for us to put the eggs into. And what we're doing is we're begging God to bring about what only He can bring about. Listen, this excites me to no end as I imagine the gospel impact this could mean for our neighborhood and our city. Just think about the multiplying nature. On average, in any given Sunday morning, we have about 150 people here on any, minute, any given Sunday morning. 150, 150. So imagine if, we'll just use this Second Timothy 2-2 language, if from me you hear this and it lands on 150 people, and then you 150 go out and entrust this to faithful men and women in your lives, begging God to save them and God saves those people. One, each of us goes out and does this with one intentionally walks with someone from unbelief to belief, begging the Holy Spirit to save them, and let's just say God saves all of them. What is that? That's 150 people that just got saved. And then we say to them, the way this works is now that you've been made into a disciple, you're just on a trajectory of maturing, but now you're called to multiply and go out and do the same. And so you're going to go out and teach others also how to do this. And now all of a sudden you have a new 150. So all of a sudden 150 has just been multiplied into 450. And imagine what would happen if God does that. The amount of community groups and discipleship groups and people that need to come along knowing their Bible to be able to train and teach and to spur along men and women to grow and mature in these ways. For years, our Jesus family has sown seeds of prayer and now the time has come, saints, for us to equip and act upon what we know to be true so that our lives make sense with the gospel of Christ we believe. Listen, I am convinced that Jesus is at work in our world-saving sinners. And as your pastor, I want you to know that I long to see the saving power of Jesus Christ on display through us out to the world around us. And what you need to know is that no system, no strategy, no structure alone is going to bring this about. If what you've heard from me today is this, I want to say this from a wrapping up, if what you've heard from me today is this, Pastor John and the elders have crafted some system or structure to make mature and multiply, and we're hanging all of our hopes on a well-articulated system and structure for the gospel to advance forward. If that's what you've heard me today, I have failed. I am not saying that. We need a system we need a structure. But more than anything, what we need is the baptism of the Holy Spirit to fall on this. That's why we read Acts chapter 1, verses 4 through 8 earlier. Now, some of us just heard me say baptism and the Holy Spirit in the same phrase, and you just got a little sweaty because you're very Baptist. Okay? Some of us have the more charismatic persuasion. I love you, brothers and sisters, and I'm so thankful you're here this morning because I was really hoping right then you would sort of gotten a little, little charismatic on me there. But what you need to know is this, as I read my Bible, I want my life to make sense according to what I see in the scriptures. And what the Bible is showing me is this, the way the gospel blew through the New Testament world, where men and women saved by God, going out and doing the work of God, empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. And you need to know that in my own personal prayer time, I am begging God to baptize this Jesus family 
with the Holy Spirit so that we would see a modern-day book of Acts erupt in Springfield and Sangamon County. I'm asking for him to come and so that we might receive power from the Spirit so that we would be a bold Jesus people whose lives of making, maturing, and multiplying disciples just make sense because Jesus is our King. Where people would go like, the, the, the people at Delta, their lives just make sense. They say they believe the stuff, but they never share Jesus. Do they really believe it? They say they believe this stuff, but they're never asking us to pray. They say they believe this stuff, but they never open their Bible. I don't want that. I want people to go, well, of course he's opening his Bible. Of course she's sharing Jesus. Of course they're discipling. Of course they're worshiping. Of course they're confessing. Of course they're repenting. Of course they're going and making and maturing. Because that's just what life makes sense in light of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ being true. And I am asking for the Holy Spirit to fall on this so that we would be able to have a front row seat to something just stinking amazing as king jesus blows through our city changes us it's going to be a lot of changing in our own lives and then as jesus changes us it trickles out from us to those around us then it keeps trickling and trickling guys that's where we're at that's where we're going to go over the next four weeks we're just going to lay a path forward of what it looks like to be intentional to be a people of prayer, what it means to just be a neighbor, and what it means to confess Jesus, okay? I love you. Listen, I get it. This was a long one today. If you're a guest here, you're like, mercy. Is this what they do every week? Some of you might say, well, it's not too far off, okay? I understand it was, I understand it was longer. I thank you for your patience. I, I don't normally apologize like this because the Word of God takes the time it takes to preach the Word of God. But what I want you to know is this. Would you just pray right now? Like, don't be tired and just check out. I'm asking. We're going to pray right now that the Holy Spirit would fall and ignite this thing. I'm inviting you in. Would you please? I mean, if you need to get on your knees, if you need to just lift your hands to the Lord, like if you just, well, I don't know the posture of your heart and the posture of your body that you need to adopt so that you can be in the right headspace to be able to pray to Jesus. I'm just asking you, do what you need to do to feel comfortable. But I am asking this I don't want this to be just a pastoral, top-down driven thing. Well, if Pastor John wants us to do it, I guess we got to. No, I'm asking that the Holy Spirit would work in such a way that we go like, I, this is just what I've been called to do because I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm an everyday disciple. And oh, you're an everyday disciple, and you're an everyday disciple, and you're an everyday disciple, and this is the whole family of everyday disciples running at this target together, okay? So we're going to do that. Let's pray. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we will turn to finishing our time together. Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, I say this, Lord, you're the one in charge. You're the Lord. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to you. Jesus, this is your human name. You are with us always to the end of the age. Lord, help us. Help us so that our lives make sense in light of this truth. Lord, help us with the going. Help us with the making. Help us with the maturing whatever you want to call it, Lord, we know what this is. It's a system. It's a structure. It's a way of thinking about our Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and beyond. But what you told the disciples in the book of Acts is, listen, you're going to go to Jerusalem. You're going to go to Judea. You're going to go to Samaria. You're going to go beyond. But don't you dare go until you've received power from the Holy Spirit. Because what I think Jesus was teaching us, Lord, what you were teaching us is that we can't do this alone. We need you. Absolute dependence upon you. So I'm asking, Lord, 
would you come and immerse this people with your spirit? Would you drench us, baptize, so that through your empowering, we would be a Christ-abiding people living for the glory of God where our lives just make sense because heaven is our home. Our lives just make sense because the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is the only power to save. Lord, help us make our lives make sense in light of these things. Holy Spirit, fall. Breathe life into us. There's areas of our lives where we need to repent. Would we be repenters, confessors, who lean on the assurance of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? Lord, would you break our heart for those not yet made disciples around us? Convict us of our apathetic aloofness to the lost around us. Holy Spirit, would you work and move in ways to where we would just sit back and go like, how are people, where are they coming from? What's going on? Like, why is my neighbor so interested in the things of Christ? And why is my coworker asking me about Jesus stuff? Let's just trust. Help us to trust, Holy Spirit, that this is you at work. You are doing the drawing, and we just get a front row seat to be instruments of redemption wielded in your hands. Holy Spirit, fall. Come and do these things for your name's sake and for your glory. Amen.